the notes so I get another extra minute and a half, right? Red Letter Revival, are you ready? This is our fifth in our series. Can you believe how fast it goes? It just goes flying by. We got five little tabs right here in my, my notebook. And uh, Red Letter Revival, I was thinking about revival. So what does revival mean? You know, preachers, they always have to get the meaning of words. Uh, so revival means to restore to life. Bring it back to life. I had the opportunity as a nurse, as an RN, uh, many times, well, not like tons of times, but lots of times, to um, have a patient in my care. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, they're alive. In fact, one time, I, I ended up in pediatrics. So prior to pediatrics, I did adult care. And I'd be, I had a conversation, one guy in particular, you know, I was working with him and talking with him. And I, uh, and I, I kid you not, within just a moment of time, he coded. And what was alive and vibrant became very still and not so alive and vibrant. And I had the opportunity to spring into action and to, to get that guy on the bed and, and flat so that I can and start pumping that heart and breathing for him and breathing life back into him. And, and I had the opportunity to watch that as that progression happened, that I started to get a, you know, a heartbeat again and to start seeing him coming back and reviving. There's something glorious about revival. There's something glorious about what used to be alive that has grown cold or, or grown quiet or grown a little less vibrant. And to come back to that thing that used to be. You know, you get to my age, there's a lot of used to be's. You know what used to be? <laughs> and to bring life back into that. So this series is meant to take the words of Jesus that are so alive and so vibrant and have lived longer than you have, people. <laughs> that if any of them have grown cold in your life, if, if anything has grown cold in your life, the goal through this, this sermon series is to breathe life back into it. Bring color back to it. Bring vibrancy. And to bring revival back to the words of Jesus. Amen? So Jesus' words have turned the world upside down. I want to read something to you here. Make my technology work. And Jesus, there it is. Look at that. It worked. So here's an article that I was reading. Uh, Despite evidence to the contrary, there are people who still insist that Jesus is a myth. But myths have little, if any, impact on history. The historian Thomas Carlyle said the history of the world is but the biography of, a, of great men. There is no nation or regime which owes its foundation or heritage to a mythological person or God. But what has been the impact of Jesus Christ? The average Roman citizen didn't feel his impact until many years after his death. Jesus marshaled no army. He wrote no books. He changed no laws. The Jewish leaders and Roman Caesars had hoped to wipe out his memory. But it appeared that they would, and it appeared that they would succeed. Today, all we see of ancient Rome is ruins. Caesar's, Caesar's mighty legions and the pomp of the Roman imperial power has faded into oblivion. Yet how is Jesus remembered today? What is his enduring influence? More books have been written about Jesus than about any other person in history. Nations have used his words as the bedrock of their governments. His Sermon on the Mount established a new paradigm in ethics and morals. Schools, hospitals, humanitarian works have been founded in his name. Over 100 great universities, including Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth. Is that how you say it? Dartmouth? 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 Dartmouth. That's how it's spelled. Spold. <laughs> Columbia, Oxford have all begun by his followers. The elevated role of women in Western culture traces its root back to Jesus. Women in Jesus' day were considered inferior and virtually non-persons until his teaching was followed. Slavery was abolished in Britain and America due to Jesus' teaching that each human life is valuable. And let me add an addendum that abortion will be eradicated through the teachings of Jesus Christ because every single life is valuable. Amen. Amazingly, Jesus made all this impact as a result of just a three-year period of public history when noted author and world historian H.G. Wells was asked who left the greatest legacy in history. He said, by this test, Jesus stands first. 
Jesus' words turned the world upside down. Mine last about 45 minutes on a good sermon. So let's look at some red letters. Amen? Open your Bible to Matthew. And let's get started because we got some good stuff today and I got 29 minutes. Okay. So the book of Matthew, we've been talking a little bit and kind of come bringing a lot out of, of the book of Matthew. If you start in the first chapter, you get Ma uh, Jesus born. Well, I always like to go to the beginning. At least I'm not going to Genesis this morning. Okay, so Matthew, Matthew 1, we get him born, right? And uh, uh, verse uh, chapter 2, the visiting of the Magi, uh, escape to Egypt, and all that kind of thing. Uh, chapter 3, then we have John the Baptist on the, on the scene, and we have the baptism of Jesus at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. And then it comes down to the line that we started with here a couple uh, weeks back, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he calls his disciples. And I'm actually going to start at Matthew 4, verse 23. And I want you to hear this. So we got him all ready to go, and he's all geared up, and his ministry is exploding right now. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so I just want you to kind of catch on there. He's preaching, and he's healing. Everybody say, preaching and healing. Verse 24, news about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought him to him all those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering serious pain, severe pain, the de demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. I would do anything to have lived during those moments. I would have done it. In Jesus' name, they are returning. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea, Judea and across the region, uh, from, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So now we kind of have an, an idea of kind of how things are going to go. Jesus is starting to grow in his influence. He's, he's got, starting to gather some crowds. He is teaching and preaching, and then he's healing the sick. He's doing miracles. And that is like the meat and potatoes of Jesus' ministry for three, the next three years. So I want you now to just flip over, just, just for fun, over to Matthew 9.35. And the, the space between the end of chapter 4 and over here at 9.35, you're going to find that that's all he does on these pages. He's going to preach and he's going to heal. So you got the Sermon of the Mount going. And then you got um, healing a man with leprosy, healing many people, uh, healing, calming the storm, healing two demon-possessed people, healing a par paralytic, um, just, just teaching on fasting, healing a dead girl, girl and a sick woman. And then at the end of chapter 9, you're going to find a lot of words that sound very similar to what I just read. So let's hear it. Jesus went throughout all the towns. This is Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness and when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few ask the lord of the harvest therefore to send out his workers into the harvest field and at that moment now there's a shift a little bit in his ministry and and it goes on but i want you to notice that there, there's two passages that sound very much alike. Did you hear that? So crowds are gathering. He's going around preaching and teaching. And then he's doing all these, 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 incredible, um, these incredible miracles. And like I said, those pages in between Matthew 5.1 and the end of that section in, in chapter 9 is what I would call the, the best internship program ever. So he's got his disciples, and they're getting closer and closer to him, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and he's healing, and just doing the most amazing thing. That is like the most intensive moment of time, I think, as he's raising up his disciples. So we're going to take a look at this. Um, it really lays down the incredible foundation of truly how Jesus is going to eventually change the world are those chapters in between. The others are really good too, but those, that little sliver of information, you know, that, that spot between Matthew 5.1, it is intense. He is just like 
three verses and he's off to another amazing thing and three verses and then he's off to change another world you know it's just pretty intense during that time so we're going to take a moment and uh, we're going to back up i also want to show you one more thing in this little section because we're going to spend some time in these pages here and uh, really have a lot of fun everybody say how fun yes okay so uh turn back over now to matthew chapter 5 and i want you to see something here on on verse 1 now, these aren't red letters, I understand, they're black, but they're kind of interesting. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And this is how he opens up the Sermon of the Mount. So he's out there, he's healing sick, everybody's starting to crowd around him. Let me tell you what, if, there, if anybody was walking the face of the earth and was healing everything that walked by him, I think he would have a crowd as well. But at this moment, Jesus walks away from the crowd and he gathers his disciples. Now, we have had the opportunity to be in this area. Now, whatever little mountain or hill that he was on, we're not exactly sure. But we've had the opportunity to be there by the Sea of, the Ga sea of Galilee and that whole area there. It's just amazing. And the way it is, it's, it's a great place, a great area, kind of like an amphitheater kind of thing. So if he were to be able to, to teach, your voice really ca carried very beautifully. But he left the crowds and he grabs his disciples. Uh, so and, and he gathers his disciples around now just for fun with me flip back over to or over to chapter 7 verses 28 and 29 and I want you to see here verse 28 of chapter 7 now this is the end of his sermon on the mount he starts it with just his disciples but it says when he finished saying these things the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority now I want you to see something here Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount very individually and very personally with his disciples. And as he's teaching his disciples, Jesus grew, uh, drew a crowd. The crowd was like, what, what, wait, what, what? And they started gathering around and around. And by the end of it, he has a huge multitude of crowd around him. And I want you to see something with that. I want you to see and know that the words of Jesus are first of all addressed to every single one of us personally. His words, and that I think is one of the most powerful things about the red words, the red letters of, of the New Testament, is that you can read it and it is just for you. It is just for you. And it's meant just for you. It's not meant, you, know, you can't read it for in your mindset of, yeah, him over there or her over there, boy. You know, sure wish Susie was reading this right now. They need it. No, every single red letter is meant for you personally. And as you grab onto it, and as you learn from those red letters and you start absorbing it in, then guess what? It's not all about you now. Now it's for those everybody around you. It begins to affect everything all around. Amen? Kind of cool. I thought it was cool. We'll see. Okay, so the section starts out here, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's flip back over to Matthew 5. We read verse 1. Now it's going to turn red, and it's going to go red for, for quite a bit of, of space here. And uh, Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount with what's called the Beatitudes. Everybody say Beatitude. Okay, so we're going to read it. And uh, actually, Derek, follow along with me. Just keep going. I didn't give him the whole passage, but we're going to go ahead and do it right now. So verse 3, chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is, he just sits down and starts talking. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to keep going here. Verses 11 and 12 are kind of an addendum. Blessed are those, are, are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus opens up. His greatest sermon ever that we know about. I'm sure he had some really good ones. But a lot of times they just said he taught in the synagogue. I wish I could have been there. I wish the CD was available. But this is the one we have right here. And he opens it up. I want you to notice he opens it up with approximately eight statements there. 
So this is the beginning kind of of Jesus' teaching ministry right here. Uh, now I want you to remember, and I just kind of push pause right there. When, and this is the beginning of the New Testament, the New Covenant, the new way that God wants to interact with his people. When God set up the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, he drew the Israelites out of Egypt, if you guys remember, kind of follow me here. He draws them out of Egypt, and he, he gets them out, and they, you know, they get out there, and the first thing he kind of does, it's not like the first, but you know what I'm talking about, basically, he takes them to Mount Sinai, and he writes and gives Ten Commandments. So the beginning of the Old Covenant, the book of the law, started with ten thou shalt nots. Well, there was eight, but there was, there was, you know, honor your father and mother. It wasn't a thou shalt not, but please don't go there with me. Just, just work with me, right? But basically, the ten commandments are a lot of thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not take my name in vain, thou shalt not, yes? A lot of thou shalt nots. And it's all a lot of outward things, outward uh, commandments, outward formation of how he wants you to live. Now Jesus starts his teaching ministry with eight blesseds. And every single one of these are not necessarily able to be valued on the outside. See, the Old Testament, there was all these Pharisees and all these, you know, chief priests and all that. And they were watching you. Did you, you know, I saw you. You helped your, your goat out of the ditch. And it's the Sabbath. Eh. They're watching on the outside. But now Jesus' teaching kind of steps away from that a little bit now. And now he's introducing eight blesseds. Blessed are those. And all of them are internal. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, Now you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But now I say, if you look upon a woman and you have lust in your heart, you've already done it. So Jesus is taking it to the nth degree now. But the cool thing about what the difference, the transition from the old covenant and the, the law and all that now to Jesus and the new covenant and, and grace is that now it's all on the, in, God, Jesus wants your heart. He wants your internal being. He doesn't want you faking it. He doesn't want you pretending. He doesn't want any of that. He wants to go straight down into your heart. And he just wants to get right in there. He wants to live right there. And he wants to work there. Because he knows that if he can work right, right there, right there, and change that right there, it'll change everything. Everything that flows out of you from that moment forward and from those adjustments down deep inside. Now he's really got you. Now. Now he has an army of people with his heart. Amen? So the Beatitudes. Now, when I started this, I knew that this last Sunday I drive home and I'm like, okay, I had seven days. I got to get another word. And uh, so I knew we were going to go into the Beatitudes. And I was kind of thinking, I thought, Beatitude, Beatitude, beautiful attitude. That's what it means. That's what it must mean. Beautiful attitudes. Okay, well, that's cool. Then I thought about halfway through the week, you know, I better confirm that. What does beatitude actually mean? It does not mean that. But for us here, we're going to call it the beautiful attitudes, okay? So beatitude actually is a um, translation of a Latin word that means blessed. So there you have it. So beatitude, we're going to call them the beautiful attitudes. And uh, so that's what we're going to do here. And I am only going to be able to get through, I'm hoping, three today. And I better hurry up. Uh, so I'm hoping to get through three, and then we'll just keep going. The Beatitudes set up the fact that the rest of Jesus' teaching is going to be counterintuitive to everything you would think is truth. Everything that you think is truth, the world's ways, the flesh ways, Jesus is going, nope. So let's get into this, okay? Let's do this. So the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Now the word blessed means happy and fortunate. 
So you can say in here, happy and fortunate. You are the best of the best of the best if you have a poor spirit. For if you have a poor spirit, if you're poor in spirit, yours is going to be the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, I told you how many times kingdom of heaven is going to come up here with Jesus' teachings constantly. So, and I've taught on it two Sundays in a row, and I still haven't finished it. But I want you in your mind to think, whenever you hear kingdom of heaven, I want you to think eternal. God was on the throne before any of this happened, and he's going to be on the throne when it's all over with. And the kingdom of heaven is eternal all the way throughout, no matter what happens in between. Amen? So the kingdom of heaven is eternal. The kingdom of heaven is present. Jesus came, and he brought the kingdom of heaven here. And the kingdom of heaven is future because in Revelation it talks about how the kingdom of heaven will come and abide with us in a physical way. Okay? So three things. Also, we learned last week about how the kingdom of heaven is always expanding. It's getting bigger. We also learned last week that the kingdom of heaven, there's the kingdom of heaven and light at the end of the age. There's going to be a separation of the two. There will be a judgment. So all these things need to go through your head whenever you see kingdom of heaven. Okay? All right, so let's get into this. Poor of spirit. Um, those uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So take the word poor. The word poor typically means someone who doesn't have something that's in lack, right? Well, even in um, the Bible times, a word, certain words, and even today, they evolve. So the word word can mean like the word and or the or it or cow or sheep, right? That's a word. Or the word word could actually mean an entire message. That's a word too. So the word word has its practical and then it has its implicative. Implicative? Is that a word? Implicative piece of it? So the word poor in this passage here could mean I just don't have enough money to pay for that. But in reality, there is a much greater implication for this word poor, and what that implication is, is this. It, it's not as in the amount of earthly possessions that you own. So poor in spirit does not here mean I don't have enough, or I've given away everything and I have nothing. What it means more is that if you can come with me right now, if, if in my head, if you have been made poor and you've lost everything, what does that do inside of you? What happens on the inside of you? You become absolutely, utterly helpless. Think of it in this way. If you have had everything taken away from you and every ability to get it back, and you are there and you're hungry and you're cold and you have nothing, now you're poor. And it's really hard for us, at least for me, to really latch onto this because I am such a can-do gal. Anybody else a can-do people in here? You know, if you run out of something, you just go figure it out, you know. And so you're never really uh, poor or destitute because you get out and, and you, you, know, you pound the pavement and you make it happen. And, and you're there and it's, it's not going to take you down. I pull myself up by the bootstraps all the time. How many of you guys, how many bootstrap pullers do I have here? Okay, so the concept here is that now you have no bootstraps left to pull you up. They're gone. You are poor. You are now poor in spirit. The opposite of poor in spirit is self-reliant. At any moment of any time that you can do something, you are not poor anymore. Now you are self-reliant. You're not poor in spirit. You're self-reliant. I want you to just keep with me. Though humanity has done amazing things, we are all still helpless and inadequate. Just keep working with me here. I want you to imagine you're sitting there strong, amazing. You, you maybe have been able to run the minute, mile or whatever, whoever's the right back there, the, the track and field person. And then you walk into the doctor's office and they say you have cancer and you have three weeks to live. Do you what are you going to do with that? You can't make cancer go away. Now you're helpless. How about when a tsunami comes? You're sitting on the beach just enjoying yourself doing and a tsunami. You can't run fast enough to get away from that thing. 
Now you're inadequate. You're a human. You're, you're a little tiny human compared to everything else. How about, um, you know, just sometimes when I, we were in Alaska and I stood looking out at Denali, uh, Mount Denali or the Denali National Park or whatever. It's just so huge. It's just kind of made you kind of spin. You're just like, you know, and I, we walked out there and there was little grass things, a little tiny flower poking up. I'm like, man, you are tougher than me. If I had to sit out here, you know, I'd be dead. And you, you know, you just are overwhelmed. This is, you're starting to understand the, the finiteness of who we are. Uh, so what is the answer to our helplessness? Humanism puts forth self-esteem, self-worth classes. You're fine. Just say it. I am good. I am strong. I can do it. I can do it. Works sometimes. But I want you to know that God, in this situation, offers himself to complete what we can't be. What's that noise? Either we're being taken over by helicopters. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so... Turn over to Exodus. I know. What are you guys all laughing about? Last week it was a spider in my hair. What was that? Turn over to Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, and I'll try to, put, I'll try to do this justice because I feel like I'm, I'm not getting you there. Moses. Moses is being called by God to save his people, and for the last chapter and a half, he's been telling God how he can't. And so I want... So before we get into this, just, just once again to clarify here. Humanity is amazing, but yet humanity is limited. You are incredible, but in another situation, you're pretty not. How many of you guys can relate? Okay, so this beatitude is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, lacking everything completely inadequate, completely unable. So Jesus, uh, God comes, the Lord comes to Moses, chapter 4, verse 10. No, um, actually, so he's, he's begging him to, come on, please, just do this. I need you to speak. I need you to speak. I need you to go forward and lead your people. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since. You have spoken to your service. I am servant. I am slow to speech. And, and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf and mute? Who gives him the sight or makes him go blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will help you speak and will teach what you say. So Moses at this mo moment is living in his helplessness. And God's reaction is, hey, I know it. Now we can get somewhere. You're right. You are slow of speech and you aren't eloquent. But who made your mouth? So what would have happened if Moses went, okay, I'll go take myself a speech class and a self-esteem class and I'll come back in a year and we'll see where we're at. God didn't have a year. He said, nope, 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 nope. Let me have your mouth. And let my grace fulfill you. So this beatitude tells us right here, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Every single one of you have incredible abilities and capabilities. And if you continue to operate only in what you can do and how you can do it, you're pretty cool. But there's no place for God. And what Jesus is saying here is that regardless of what you have, regardless of how much gifting and talenting and all of that stuff that you have, if you will empty yourself of what you can do for yourself, if you will empty yourself of everything that you could fix on your own and become as poor in spirit as what I had uh, you know, originally said, uh, we go to Africa and those people, they don't have anything, and you drive by and they're like, oh, there it is, and they're running after you. They'll rock your van until they shake you out of there to help you. 
And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you know what? No matter how good you are, no matter how talented you are, no matter what, if you will lay it all down, if you will let go of it, if you will not rely on it another second, but you will say, Father God, I am absolutely poor in spirit. I can be nothing without you. Now at that moment, the Lord is able to come in and rise up and be like the hand in the puppet and make it do amazing things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And my challenge to you, people of God, today is to take every shred of everything that you think you can do, that you can do, that you want to do, and I want you to just go... Because no matter what I try to do, it isn't going to work as good as if I had you. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 brings a whole new meaning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't trust in you. Don't trust in your ability. Don't trust in anything like that. Trust in the, with all your heart. Lean not onto your own understanding. How many of you guys are like, yeah, God, me, God, me. A little bit of got me. I'm pretty good. Got me, God. Oh, oh, wow, wow. Oh, God, I need you now. I need you. God, me. Oh, I don't know if I can do this. God, me, God, me. Lean not on your own understanding. Nothing there, nothing left of your understanding. Lean not onto your own understanding. With all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's called being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the next one, and I have no minutes left for this one. Other than the fact, so, uh, so go back to Matthew 16. Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That word mourn there is actual emotional distraughtness. And what every uh, person that I read has indicated that this mourning is supposed to be over our sin. He calls us to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comfort comforted. And the indication here is that he's drawing you as a people. He's drawing us as a people to realize our brokenness before a very righteous God. And any time and every time that we have a, a, a bit of sin inside of us, that we would not walk in pride and that we would not joke about it or we would not just go, eh, it's okay, a little poo and a brownie are fine. But he wants us to actually mourn. Now, in the East... In the Eastern cultures, mourning was a very out there crazy. They would scream, they would cry, they would rip their, ah, they would go crazy. They'd even hire mourners to mourn for you and with you so, to make it even more impressive. Now the Western culture, you know, you come into a funeral, it's like, okay, I want to challenge you. When it comes to sin in this world, sin in our own hearts. What's our reaction? No, I don't want it anymore. No, get it out of me, Lord. I don't want anything inside of me that is anything less than you. Get it away from me. Get away from me. Get away from me. Or is it? We see sin in the world. Father God, Jesus, Lord God, I repent, Lord God. It breaks my heart. Or is it, blessed are those who mourn. Invest your emotional strength into repentance. And you're going to be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. What are the meek? I'm going to do this very fast. Are you ready? This was a good sermon. This piece of the sermon was my best part. Shoot. <laughs> Blessed are the meek. What is meek? I'm going to give this to you fast, so come with me quick. Okay, you ready? Here we go. 
Meek is not, as they always say, weak, okay, or mealy mouth. What meekness is, is strength under control. God is asking you to become meek. He is not asking you to become just a bleh on the floor. He is asking you to become meek just like he was meek. The word meek is praus, P-R-A-U-S. And it means that a wild animal has now become domesticated and trained to obey the command of its master and answer to the rein. I want you to think in your mind, not of a, a glob of glue, goo just with nothing down there. I want you to think in your mind, when we, he says meek, what he's calling you to be is like a wild stallion that has ran wild and rampant all throughout the valleys and the mountains with no rhyme or reason and nothing like that, strong and mighty, but with no control. And that stallion now has been brought in and trained and broken of its of its will, and now that stallion, mighty, my favorite place in the Puyallup Fair is the, the Clydesdales. You know, those big guys are just rippling with muscle and strength, and you know they could tear that whole place apart, but they stand there like this, and they have a bit, and if its, if it's master goes like this, it goes like this. And it's able to be harnessed and put its full strength into the will of that master. And if that master needs to pull something huge and make something happen, he does that. And that, that horse is so meek that it will, is willing to take its strength and its power and everything that it has and submit it to the will of the guy who's running. And it has a little bit in its mouth and, and anything, it'll just, it'll, it'll crack this way or that way and it's strong. Jesus was completely meek. He was the creator of the universe. And yet he walked on this planet and he said, I will do nothing unless the Father tells me. He was completely harnessed by the control of the Father in his life. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Jesus was not weak. He had moments where he stood firm. But every time Jesus overturned the money changers or he said all his woes to those Sadducees and Pharisees, it had nothing to do with personal gain. It had nothing to do with offense. It had everything to do with truth. Jesus, completely powerful under total God control. First Peter, I'm just going to do this as fastly as I can. This is talking about Jesus when he was being insulted and beat and treated so evilly. First Peter 3, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Meekness silences personal defense. Meekness silences retaliation. Meekness caused, caused Jesus when he was being treated wrongly to not, you know, when you read those, that passage in there when he's with Pilate, you're like, come on, Jesus, give it to him. But he was listening to the father and the father said, hush. So Jesus took it. Power under control of God the Father. Moses, Numbers 12, verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to tell you this. This is when Miriam and, and whoever the other fellow was, Aaron. Was it Aaron and Miriam? They came out against him, and, uh, and, and he's, they were saying all sorts of evil things about him. And then there's one verse that says, but Moses was the meekest man. Humblest, meek. The most powerful man in, in all of Israel, but the most controlled by the Spirit of God. And he kept his mouth shut. And the Bible, that passage goes on, and God called him out. The Lord said, Miriam, Aaron, come here, let's have a chat. What would have happened if Moses would have said, no, I'm the leader here. You shouldn't be talking to me about me like that. Stop it. But he was meek. He had all the power in the world. He was all the truth was on his side. All the righteousness was on his side. But God never told him to open his mouth. So guess what? He didn't open his mouth. And that left room for the Lord to judge. I'd like the band to come. 
Beatitudes, the beautiful attitudes. The first three are self-emptying, poor in spirit. That, oh, that we would come to a place where we realize that even our gifts and talents need to be let go of and that we would t entirely yield it to the Lord and let God be the one that raises us up. Totally reliant. Totally reliant. What would, he, what would this army of God, this, this congregation, your family, what would your life be like if you let go and let God? Number two, mourn over sin. Mourn over sin. Hate it. Hate it. Grieve over it. Spend a little bit of your emotional. When you see it, take a moment and just, I mean, you don't have to scream and yell and throw dirt in the air like they did, okay? I'm not asking you to do that, but maybe you would let the Lord move your heart a little bit. Maybe when you see brokenness, you will pray for it. Maybe when you, let the Lord put his burden on your heart. And finally, Meekness. Meekness. Strength. Your amazing strength. Can you imagine the army of God? This is what he's building. The, the church of God. You individually, where your strengths and everything are so submitted to the control of God. And if he says left, you go left. If he says right, he goes, you go right. If he says stop, you stop. If he says go, you go. Nobody's going like, well, you know, I think it's better over here. No, you know, I think I need to help you here because you're not taking things totally, completely submitted to him. Let's all stand. I'd love for you guys to do Build My Life. Are you already figuring out what to do? Is that it? Oh, praise God. But I'm not there to play the piano. So you're going to have to figure it out. So just give it to us. Build My Life. I would love to ask just a few more moments, just two more minutes of your attention that you would be willing, even now, to begin to just empty you out of you. That you would just be willing to empty you out of you and respond to these beautiful attitudes. Respond to this poor in spirit, realizing you, you aren't all that in a bag of chips. You might be the bag, but he's the chips. your hands in the air and just say, Father, I empty myself. I can do nothing without you. I might have a few bootstraps, but they're nothing compared to you. Father, I am poor of spirit. I am incapable. I am inadequate. Live in me. Live in me. Grace. 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 Rise up inside of me. Live in me. Speak through me. Act in me. Be in me. I am no longer alive. But Christ lives in me. I am poor in spirit. Say, Father, give me a burden sin. I refuse it. I lay it aside. I mourn over what hurts your heart. I mourn for the pain it causes in people. I mourn for what I do that you mourn over. Waken me. And Father God, Take all of my strength, all of I am, all that I am, put a bit in my mouth. I yield my strength to you. All control, I am yours, I am yours, I will to do your will. In Jesus' name. We're gonna sing this song Thank you for coming to church.
thank you. God is so good with your obedience. But if you have time still, just let the song minister to you. Come forward for prayer if you'd like it. And let's just worship. song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you we live for you Jesus Jesus the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. You're holy. And holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes and wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. that you said is so solid we cannot be shaken on it we're not falling off of it it's wide and it's deep it's bigger than any other ground I've ever set my feet on come on let's see I will build my life and I will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation
open up my eyes in wonder who you are and fill me and lead me to those around me. Lead me in your love, Lord. Your love is great, Lord. 